Top 5, a show where we count things down from number 5 to number 1. And this week, we're going back to the movies. This is a suggestion from one of our fans in the Major Spoilers Discord server. Yes, you can join our Discord server and join the likes of hundreds, maybe even thousands of Major Spoilerites who are hanging out in the Discord chat rooms, talking about their favorite top fives, talking about their favorite movies, talking about comic books. Lots of pictures of cats. If you like cats, there's lots of pictures of cats. Not so many pictures of dogs. So I don't know. But anyway, this comes from our Discord uh, top five channel. Top five documentaries. Top five documentaries. Now, I'm a big fan of documentaries. I watch a lot of documentaries. I don't know about you, Rodrigo, and I don't know about you, Matthew. No. No, you do not. Okay, well, then let's not. let's start with you, Matthew. What is your number five documentary? My number five documentary is actually probably the first thing that popped into my head, except for the obvious one, which we'll get to later. And it's actually not a movie, but I believe that it still does count as a documentary at least at this point in time back in oh god the 1980s uh i you know actually would watch a particular television channel i'm not going to tell you the name of it but it's television and music and they had them together and by about 1991 i was in college i was still occasionally watching it and one evening i accidentally caught the first episode of the first season of the real world which has been retroactively branded i think as the real world new york and it was literally at that point in time, it was a documentary where they got seven kids from around the country and they stuck them in a loft in New York and said, okay, do stuff. And unlike later seasons where it becomes clear that everybody has you know, a particular character that they want to play or an arc that they want to live out or something that they want to do or you know, maybe they want to take over and host, I don't know, MTV Raps, if that's still a thing. All of these kids were just kind of at a loss and stuck in this apartment to the point where a couple of them barely appear in the show at all. Uh, it's it's hilarious to watch it because Kevin, one of the characters or one of the actors in the show, is actually a working writer. So he would disappear for weeks at a time. He didn't actually live in the apartment. There's a whole episode centered around the fact that Kevin doesn't live in the apartment. Nobody's seen him for so long that he doesn't know what's going on. So they all decide to play a practical joke on him. But the thing that I think it's most fascinating about it is this is so early that MTV forgot to make it a rule that you couldn't sleep with the crew. So one of the girls has an affair with one of the directors who then becomes, because she's his boyfriend or she's his girlfriend, then becomes a, a actual character in the show. And it's hilarious to watch this and think, what did they expect? What were they trying to go for? And, and you know, now in retrospect, 30 years later, the real world is kind of terrible. Um, <laughs> there's a lot of ways to look at it as nothing more than kids trying to get famous. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but in that first season, it felt like they were trying to go for that, you know, that, you know, life in the city kind of vibe. And it's really, really good. And it really does have, with the exception of one thing that always entertains me, it does have a lot of real in the real world. Although there's apparently a whole romance arc between two people in the house who, when they saw the show, didn't realize that it was a romance arc. He kind of had a crush on her. She kind of reciprocated 
but it became one of the central narrative points of the show. And, you know, halfway through season one becomes the point where MTV's The Real World eventually goes off the rails and turns into, you know, just this endless spewing uh, fire hose of nonsense. But back in 92, back in 91, The Real World really affected me. It's probably the the most important of the documentaries on this show, at least to my development as a weirdo pop culture freak. So that's kind of cool. All right. Thank you for that, Matthew. Rodrigo, what do you have for your number five? Uh, my number five is a pretty recent uh, documentary. Um, it came out, when did it come out? 2019. So very recent. Seven minutes ago. Yeah. Um, yeah, I keep forgetting that it's March. Um, it's, it's March? Yeah, oh, it has been for like a whole year now. Yeah, all it's it's... I'm sorry, last week was one of the longest years of my life. I don't even yeah. know what day it is, man. So... Um, my uh, number five is a documentary called The Boy Band Con. Uh, and it is the story of how NSYNC and the Backstreet Boys came to be, came to be a thing. Or so it seems. Because actually, that's just like a quarter of what the documentary is. Really, it's the story of the guy who put these bands together and how he was a uh, con artist and, you know, flim flammer and, and so on. And uh, when, when they, the, the documentary starts out by showing you a lot of what he did with the bands, but then halfway through, they go all the way back to this guy's childhood and you just start seeing all of these events that led to it. And uh, the documentary does a very good job of portraying this guy the way that the band saw him and then going back and being like, well, actually this is what he was really like and, you know, creating all these problems. And then it leads to the end of it and the fallout of everything that happened afterwards. Um, you know, it blew my mind to just to having grown up in the nineties and early two thousands that in uh, sync and the backstreet boys actually were created by the same person and were, in essence like sister bands like they um a lot of the resources that one band generated were put towards the success of the other band and things like that uh whereas you know as a as a kid growing up at that time you assumed that there was like some big uh rivalry and for the kids that were in these bands there was a big rivalry and for the fans they got split into these rivalries but in reality, all money that was being generated was all between these two bands was going, and even by the rivalry itself was going to the same person. So it's it's pretty <laughs> interesting to see how like this intersection of like crime, show business, and especially for me having been a, a teenager during you know the the heyday of all these boy bands, to to also then have this um this this thing that I'm somewhat familiar with, right? They got. A lot of the members, basically, they got every member that is not currently doing something except for Lance Bass because he produced it. But every every Backstreet Boy, a member of NSYNC, except for like uh, Joey Fatone and Justin Timberlake are in this. Mm. Plus their moms. And it's kind of a trip <laughs> to see the, the moms of the Backstreet Boys and NSYNC. Nice, nice, Backstreet nice, nice. Backstreet moms. That's weird. 
Uh, okay, so my number five is a look at one of the most powerful people, or one of the, at one time, one of the more powerful people in Hollywood. He just died in 2019. Uh, he started out as a um, uh, radio announcer, and then he became a stage star, and then a movie star, and then he became the head of, uh, was it Paramount Pictures? And it is, uh, the kid stays in the picture, it is the story of Robert Bob Evans, uh, not the Bob Evans who you get your mashed potatoes from, but uh, but uh, Robert Evans, the huge movie mogul who basically was running uh, Paramount for years. Um, and if you ever followed him on Twitter, especially in the last two or three years, ever since Trump became president, uh, he became uh, quite interesting in some of the posts that he was. He he basically didn't have any F's to give, and he he shared that on Twitter, but. Kid stays in the picture. Uh, I, re- I believe it's narrated by Bob Evans himself. Uh, it's based on the book by the same pi- uh, name. What's amazing about this documentary is that there was very little archival footage that they had of the early days of, of uh, Robert Evans. And so they had all these still photographs and they didn't want to go the Ken Burns uh, method of just panning and zooming into the pictures. And what really stands out is they went into After Effects. They scanned in all the images and they rotoed out, you know, different layers of the photographs and started doing some really cool two and a half D effects where as you're pulling out, the background starts to recede while the person, you know, uh, comes more into view mm-hmm. and really made it look like you were really shooting these still photographs in 3D with a real camera. It was very cool technique and it really draws you in. It's got some amazing interviews. If you don't know who Robert Evans is. Just sit down and watch this thing because it is amazing to learn about his his life. It is he is literally a larger than life character, and it comes off in the kid stays in the picture. It was released in two thousand two. The book was I want to say released in nineteen ninety four. The audio book was uh, also narrated by Robert Evans. But kid stays in the picture. It's a magnificent film, uh, definitely one of my favorites, and why it made it into my top five. Matthew, let us swing now to our number fours, and I'm interested what you have for your number four documentary. It's actually disgusting. You will be disgusted. I'm disgusted by it, and this is, you know, this is an important thing. Sometimes when you're young, you're into things that are awful, and you don't realize it until you're old enough to really parse out what in the holy hell you were thinking, and that's why... Uh, in, in the interests, I think, of truth and justice and, you know, reality, I have to admit my number four, something that I was very interested in once upon a time, is actually more than one movie. It's a series of five movies, uh, usually found on three or four or fifth generation VHS copy, Faces of Death. Now, the thing about Faces of Death is I have to kind of put an asterisk by it, because when you say documentary obviously i couldn't do any flat-out mockumentaries i couldn't do uh, what my daughter calls that movie with the guy from the lonely island that you and rodrigo love but i felt like this one really still kind of fit because it was at least the first three movies it was placed it was presented as a documentary supposedly real documentation of the deaths of real people And that's one of the reasons why, you know, these tapes were traded around was callous young freaks would be like, oh, let's watch this. And then you'd see, you know, terrible things happening. And, you know, in retrospect, looking back, it's clear that some of them all are faked. 
uh, some of them are in fact not exactly what they seem to be at all. And if you actually watch all six, which Lord help us, we did, uh, one of the local, um, video shops had all six of them and it was a point of pride for some of us in our twenties to watch all six of them and be like, yeah, I watched all six of them, dude. Because sometimes when you're 20, you want to be awful, I guess. Um, I really, I, I can't explain it now, but they are a part of growing up in the 1980s. And I think they're an important part to at least mention because the first Faces of Death movie is supposedly narrated by a pathologist who wants to try and teach you something about, you know, causality and the transitional nature of, of life and death and the things that can happen. And each successive sequel becomes less, you know, existential and more gross out. Let's see what we can do here. And part of a selling point was this is quote unquote real stuff. This is actual deaths. And it's horrifying. And looking back, I don't think I ever want to go back and ever see these movies again. I honestly can't remember specifics of them. And I kind of consider that to be a little bit of a blessing because I'm old now and I'm sensitive to things. And I, I, I kind of, I, I feel like that my 20 year old self was a jerk for wanting to see all of these. And many of my friends, we were also jerks, but we were jerks together. And I kind of hope that we learned something from it. But even if we didn't, I feel like in the age of the internet, all of these these faces of death things are kind of no longer relevant. They no longer have any power. You can see something on a live stream on YouTube that will just mess you up worse than anything you saw in any of these fifth generation VHS copies, you know, in the back of OK Video. And I'm really, I don't know how I feel about that, you know, because I have I have a kid growing up in this stuff, but nonetheless, I can't recommend them. I don't recommend them. I actually will tell you tell you flat out do not seek these movies out do not look at these movies they're not good for you they won't tell you anything they won't make you feel better about anything all they will do is create gross things in your head and you don't need that but they were a large enough experience for me that i felt like and also i don't have a lot of documentaries but i felt like they had to be mentioned and that's why my number four stay away from the faces of death yeah, so you watched all all five of them, or however many there were. Six, I you think. You watched all six of them. Wow. Yes. Yeah, they're awful. And well, ah. the thing about it is, four and five and six are actually compilations, which feature many of the same things as oh. one and two. So, I mean, you're seeing the same stupid stuff. And honestly, you know, looking back, what I know about you know movie production and the the way effects are done, I honestly believe that much of what we saw there is not actually real. But also, I don't want to find out. I don't want to go. I don't want to go down that particular uh, mouse hole, and I, I just don't know. Ugh, ah, ugh, don't do it. Stay away, kids. Learn from my mistakes. You don't want to grow up and be like this. What are you nuts? All right. Thank you for that, Matthew Rodriguez. What is your number four? Uh, my number four is another relatively recent one. Actually, all of these are pretty recent. Um, but um. My number four is Fire, F-Y-R-E, which oh, yeah, is about, uh, about Fire Festival. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the the way to tell apart from the other one is it often gets called Fire, the greatest party that never happened, 
but that's just its tagline. Really, it's just called Fire. And the important thing to remember about this documentary, an important thing to remember about documentaries in general, is that most documentaries are trying to get you to think about something in a particular way. Almost no documentary presents things in a completely neutral manner. Um, the previous documentary that I talked about, about the boy bands, that, that's produced by Lance Bass. So obviously his opinion of things is, is present. And this documentary, Fire, was produced by Jerry Media, who were the guys who were behind Fire Festival's social media campaign. Um, is this the Netflix one or the Hulu one? This is the Netflix one. Okay. So it's important to remember that those guys that are kind of implicated in this are the ones who made this documentary largely to change public opinion about how much they were impl implicated. So once you have that, that said, this documentary presents a very good timeline of everything that happened um, leading up to and past the Fire Festival, which was um, a, a worldwide uh, known failure um, of notorious uh, con artist, um, what's his name? Billy something. Billy um, McFarland? Billy McFarland, that's what it is. And um, it walks you through kind of like his early years, going kind of from project to project to project, luring wealthy investors, getting their money, then having to, like, spending that money for himself, then having to come up with a new thing, luring wealthy investors to pay back the investors for the last thing that he did. And Fire Festival is, ba or the Fire app, um, which he was going to use uh, the Fire Festival to promote, is the last uh chain in or the last link in this chain of of things um that he was using to pay back investors and it just goes horribly wrong um and this documentary presents a very good uh kind of step-by-step -step, um sort of process of how and why it went so wrong and it talks to people who were there it talks to people who um became aware that this kind of fraud was happening before it happened and started kind of ringing the alarms, but, you know, not enough people pay attention to them. And more importantly, it features a lot of young, attractive influencers being sad, which I think might actually be the biggest draw for a lot of people. <laughs> um, so there's that. Um, now, you might say, wow, that wow, this is two documentaries in a row about... Um, con artists what's the deal and the deal is that my wife is very interested in con artists so i've been watching a lot of these and there's a good chance that any given day when i come back from work um fire is is just playing like she's just watching it in the background um like we we quote fire to each other the way that people like will quote, quote the, like the Goonies or Star Wars, because <laughs> um, because this this has become ubiquitous. Is it is it my number four because it's a good documentary? I think so, but is it also my number four because of Stockholm syndrome? I mean, it's possible. <laughs> Who knows? I'm in this. I'm in the house. That's so, um, yeah, my number four, Fire. All right, I'm I'm going to be interested in see if if there's a lot of con artist movies on your list. I'll be interested to see if there's a movie on there that I have only watched half of, and yet I find it fascinating mm. 
mm-hmm. and it kind of dips not maybe not into the true con artist side, although there's a couple of other ones on my list that do that, uh, but deals into someone who came in with good intention who was taken by the mafia. Ooh. So we'll see if, if that shows up on your list. But now we got to get to my number four. Back in 1989, Matthew and I attended Fort Hayes State University in western Kansas. And at one point in the next year, uh, the chair of our radio TV film department bought a a new tech uh, video toaster. Now, the video toaster, many of you may not know what that is, but it was a television studio in a a Commodore Amiga uh, system. Yeah. And you could switch cameras and, and render animations and do graphics and all these really cool things. And New Tech is a company that at the time was headquartered in Topeka, Kansas. Uh, and it was run and founded by a man by the name of uh, uh, Tim uh, Jennison. I think, yeah, that's uh, Jennison is how you say his last name. Uh, eventually, they moved out and moved to um, moved to Texas. But over the years... I've had a couple of opportunities to meet with Tim just in passing, uh, just, you know, to say hi, to get introduced to him when I was working uh, in the in the media field uh, years ago and would have to go to conventions and places. And and a good friend of mine at the time uh, actually had worked with New Tech and was friends with Tim. So got to meet, you know, meet a lot of those people. Well, Tim, uh, you know, made a lot of money and had a lot of time on his hands and he was. Fascinated with the paintings of Vermeer. These pictures, if you've never seen uh, Johann uh, Vermeer's paintings, they look like photographs. There are these oil paintings that are just beautifully brilliant. If you looked at him, you would say, no way was this painted by someone in the 17th century. And Tim had a passion for figuring out how did Vermeer paint his paintings? Because no one knew. There, you know, It's one of those things that's lost to history. No notes that were around. And so Tim spent many a year trying to figure out how Vermeer painted his his uh, pictures. And so Tim's Vermeer is a documentary directed by Teller of Penn and Teller fame. Penn Gillette is actually the uh, producer of the film. And this just chronicles Tim's journey in figuring out how the Vermeer painting was made. And I remember sitting and watching this in 2013 when this came out and or maybe it was 2014 and just being amazed at, oh, my gosh, look at how they're going through the process, look at how they're trying to figure things out. Uh, Tim even built a little studio to kind of mimic one of Vermeer's paintings so that uh, he could try to get it as close as possible. And then when you find out uh, how Vermeer probably did this, although there's a lot of art historians who turn up their nose and say, impossible, uh, I don't believe it. Uh, But when you find out the technique of how Vermeer may have done this, it's like, oh, really? And without giving too much away, you can actually do this right now with a simple $10 product. And it's very cool. It's a long one. You do have to get through a lot of talking. You have to get through a lot of starts and failures. But it is a it is a fascinating documentary. I like these ones that are about journeys, trying to get from point A to point B. And Tim's Vermeer is definitely that movie. And so that's why it's on my number four. Definitely worth uh, checking out uh, as a documentary film if you have not already seen it we have made it all the way to our number threes now things get really interesting matthew what do you have for your number three my number three is interesting it's a film that i've i must have seen it a hundred times and it's really easy to see a hundred times because it's not a very long film uh and it's one of those things that i remember 
vividly from being a child. Um, we had a whole bunch of uh, film strips and little loopy things in uh, the library of my elementary school. And among those were a lot of the, you know, the Disney and then the lemmings fell off the thing documentaries. But they had one loop that I could never really understand why it was there, or what it was doing. And it was just a man with a big mustache snorting something and sneezing. It's a five second loop. And when I finally discovered and figure out what this is, my number three, Fred Ott's Sneeze, is one of the very first actual films. I think it's the first film that is uh, surviving with a copyright, whatever you know that differentiation would be. And it's made uh, by, I don't know if it's made by Edison, because is anything really made by Edison? No, he's a fraud. He's a liar. Don't believe anything that anyone tells you about Thomas Edison. <laughs> the guy is a crook. Well, and nonetheless, it's made by the Edison Manufacturing Company, uh, which has his name on it, which I guess is sort of the same thing. But essentially, yes, there's someone else is... who is all full of crap who puts his name on everything as well. You can associate Edison with him. <laughs> it's essentially just a five second loop of a man taking snuff and sneezing. But it's from the year 1894. And it's at a point where you're like, oh, my God, is that the longest film that they could come up with? What is this? And you think about this world because, you know, when I was growing up, I honestly thought that at one point the world was in black and white because the Beverly Hillbillies and Gomer Pyle were. And, it, you know, I was I was disavowed of that notion at a completely not embarrassing age, certainly not 17. Um, but just looking at this, and this is the best part, if you actually go to the Wikipedia, you can watch the whole damn film. It's actually in the little info box. The entirety of the film is there, and you can watch it. It's a piece of film history. But it's really, really interesting to look and see how, first of all, this is over, what, now, 150, 130? I don't know. I'm not good with math. But like 125 years old, and it's some of the earliest, I don't know if it's actually film? I think it's Yeah, it's film. It's film. Kinescope? Okay. Well, whatever it is, it probably yeah, it's, it's not a kinescope. It's a kinetoscope, but yeah. What's the difference between a kinescope and a kinetoscope? One is a uh, is the flappy flappy pieces of pictures. The other one is actual mm -hmm. celluloid. All right. So the kinetoscope is actual celluloid. Yes. This is this the sneeze is <laughs> the sneeze is celluloid. Okay, the sneeze is celluloid. But seriously, I sneeze recommend just looking at it, just staring at it, and letting it pervade into your consciousness in ways that I would not have said with either my number five or my number four. Stay away from those. But this is cool because it's just a piece of weird film history. And I just love the idea that at six or seven years old, I watched this mess over and over and over trying to figure out what it was all about. Turns out I was looking at living freaking history, my friends. And also that Lemming documentary turned out to be fake anyway. So, you know, what is the world? What is reality? Dogs and cats living together. That's my number three. All right. Rodrigo, what do you have for your number three? It better not um, be one of the medicine films. I know. <laughs> is it the one with the elephant? Because we're mad about that. Oh, no. No way. Um, but it does... My number three does have elephants in it. Um, and that is... I mean, I don't know if it's legal to put uh, the entirety of the Planet Earth series one and two as a single choice. 
Um, but but as much as will fit into a single choice, um, the BBC Planet Earth series is really good. And again, when you look at the bias implicit in in documentaries. Um, it has a very clear bias towards conservation, right? Towards saying, "Hey, uh, all of these, uh, all of these animals are, even if they're not immediately endangered, they are in danger. Their habitats are disappearing." Uh, Planet Earth Two specifically has a, an episode ser- uh, centered around cities, like animals who live and thrive uh, in in human cities. Um, and uh, certainly we're seeing some interesting stuff happening um, since uh, the coronavirus quarantine uh, hit and, you know, like all of the all the monkeys that eat at the marketplace, you know, they're not being fed. So they're like breaking into people's houses and fighting each other for food. And, you know, all those like cute deer that Japanese uh, tourists feed um, have since like migrated deeper into the city to find to find food so it's it's interesting to see um, there's always this sort of undercurrent of the impact that humans have also uh, both planet earth and planet earth to have a footage that was in the process of shooting these documentaries discovered new things about animals um, and possibly actually discovered at least one new species of animal in the process Um, so I might be thinking of the the ocean ones, but uh, they share a lot of footage. Uh, so yeah, my number three, Planet Earth, uh, and Planet Earth Two, and or however much of that I'm allowed to have as a single entry. <laughs> all right. Well, I have no authority, and I say you can have all of it. Oh, uh, well, that's good. Thanks. Just take I, that for what it's, it's just. Worth. It's just moral support. There I appreciate it. That's what we uh, do. My number three. Uh, first time that one of these films has appeared on the list, and I'm sure people were wondering, well, I wonder if so-and-so will appear on the list. Yes, Ken Burns is going to appear on this list mm-hmm. in the form of The Dust Bowl, which is a, I want to say it's a four-hour miniseries about the Dust Bowl days uh, that followed uh, right before the uh, Great Depression. And what's fascinating about The Dust Bowl, and, and the reason why I like it is because it's relevant uh, history that is both close enough to where we are right now that there were people still alive who remember the Dust Bowl and the dust storms, and it's regionally close to where uh, I am right now. The The Dust Bowl started in the panhandle part of, of Oklahoma and kind of just blew up and moved uh, eastward from there. So por- portions of Oklahoma, Kansas, Texas, uh, little bits of Nebraska, all part of, of the Dust Bowl. And what's fascinating about this is not the historical facts that are presented, although if you didn't know that the um, that the Dust Bowl is a direct result of the stock market, uh, that is something that is a surprise when you learn that all these people were buying up land because people were paying all this money for wheat and corn, and so people were buying up all this land and basically not knowing how to farm, and then because there was so much product on the market, it bottomed out the... Uh, the the grain futures and so everyone was uh poor but at the same time the farmers who didn't know how to farm forgot to how to do conservation of the soil and that led to the dust bowl it was really fascinating uh but it's it's the emotional uh, stories that you get out of the dust bowl documentary that really draws you in you know these these people these elderly people 
who were but mere kids when the Dust Bowl happened, talking about how they lost a brother or a sister uh, or, a, a you know, a, a relative who just had to get out to the barn to check on the cows and he was never heard from again. You know, it's just those kind of scary stories that that these people are talking about or how they went to church on a Sunday and they were having a Sunday picnic and everything was nice. And then all of a sudden, 30 minutes later, this giant dust storm is rolling in and people were scrambling for their lives to get back home. It's super, super well done. It is a Ken Burns film. It relies a lot more on archival footage than what his typical films do, where it is um, still photographs, but still the Dust Bowl. Man, it really hits you hard. It's a 2012 um, documentary that was part of uh, the PBS's, I want to say, American Experience, but it may have just been one of those, (coughs) excuse me, uh, stand on its own films that uh, PBS released, but definitely worth checking out. Ken Burns' The Dust Bowl. All right, let's get to number two. And Matthew, what do you have for number two? My number two is actually a film that you mocked me for, um, but, you know, that could be anything at this point in time. Uh, Remarkably, I'm not necessarily a very timely consumer of my media. I'll run into things when I run into them, and sometimes there are things that I feel like I should know something about or that I should have some sort of access to that I just don't. That's all. I just don't. So back in 2005... Um, a documentary came out by Werner Herzog that, I, in retrospect, I wish I had seen in, in theaters. I wish that I had had access to at a point where you could go, hey, everybody's talking about this, because my number two, Grizzly Man, is such a remarkable movie. Uh, I actually watched it either last year or the year before. I can't even remember, to be honest. Um, but when I bumped into it, I bumped into it by accident as on cable as I often do. And I recorded it so I could watch the whole thing. And if you, uh, if you're familiar with Werner Herzog for, uh, for anything other than, you know, kidnapping the baby Yoda spoilers, um, he has a very unique speaking voice and a very, very thick, I think German accent. And he narrates the story. And the story is uh, a young man named Timothy who fancies himself uh, an ecologist who literally goes and lives with bears every summer and people who are actually, you know, very knowledgeable about bears, people who are actual, you know, bear scientists, environmentalists, and people who are definitely knowledgeable in the ways of bears literally cannot believe that he got away with this. They cannot believe that he was not mauled again, spoilers much earlier than he actually was. And this movie is built together from footage of several summers of Treadwell himself out in the Alaskan wilderness recording what he thought was going to be his own documentary. But, you know, after a tragic accident, someone else was assembling the footage. It's really, really just intense. You get into his head and you see... You see him preparing to do his little stand-ups and doing his uh, explanations of what's going on with the bears. And then you see him when he's not recording for posterity. And it's really strange. And the man himself is very unusual and has a an interesting backstory. And, of course, my daughter now walks around the house uh, doing impersonations of Werner Herzog. It's one of the few impersonations that she does perfectly well. When she starts to explain about the bears and how the bears 
are simply proof that the universe is chaos and everyone hates us and we're all going to die. But if you get a chance to watch Grizzly Man, I definitely recommend it. There is a scene in this movie where Werner Herzog actually hears a recording of the accident itself. Oh, I didn't think and he heard it. I thought he watched it. He heard it. It's okay. uh, it's actually an audio recording because okay. the the lens cap was on. Oh, I see. Uh, and Werner Herzog, uh, you know, veteran uh, movie maker, veteran crazy person, the man who literally once got shot and said it is not a serious wound, and kept drinking, uh, told the woman who had the recording never to listen to it and refused to put it in his movie, mm-hmm. even though the producers seemed to be arguing. Uh, the people who were paying for the film were like. You know, you should put that in the movie. You should put that in the movie. And Werner Herzog is like, I will not put this in the movie. It is horrifying. It's terrible. You can see the man shaken by this. And again, shot, blew it off. But this experience of listening to that tape was too horrifying for him. So I have to, you know, I have to wonder about it. It's one of those movies that says as much about the filmmaker as it does about the subject, which I guess is probably true of all the documentaries, especially if you've been listening to Rodrigo. But man, if you can get this movie and you can sit down and watch it, first of all, it'll break your heart a little bit. But second of all, it'll be a wonderful experience at the end, uh, aside from the, you know, the broken heart and the possibly, you know, the wondering, oh my God, what could have possibly happened there? I don't even want to know. So there you go. Uh, Rodrigo, what is your number two? My number two is uh, Blue Planet, another BBC animal documentary. But this one is just about ocean animals. Um, this one, I know for a fact, like in shooting this, they did discover like new behaviors for certain animals. And I think just straight up discovered at least one new, I don't know, like copy pot or something. Um, <laughs> because this uh, especially blue planet 2 had um some like absolute state of the art um like submarines and and shooting equipment and really allowed them to um uh really allowed them to to get into it and and part of the one of the great things about these documentaries is that they're able to get really close to the animals you're able to see them up close, you're able to see their behaviors, but over and over again, you see, you hear things like, um, you know, the blue whales, largest animals around, can't miss them. We have no idea where they go to breed. Like we just, they just disappear, and then like a year later, they show up, and there's a slightly smaller, monstrous whale uh, that's just like hanging out. And it's like we don't we don't know we don't know where they go we don't know how they do it and there's just so much about the uh, the oceans that we still don't know about and we don't understand um, and it kind of has a, it's like a sobering effect you know uh, sometimes people think they're like hot stuff but we're kind of not there's a lot of stuff that we still don't know and uh, there's a lot of and it's exciting because there's a lot of stuff yet to be discovered. Um, uh, part of I, I want to say it's part in these documentaries talks about like well you know scientists always thought that you needed X Y and Z to to have life but turns out that at the bottom of the ocean there are places that don't have some of those prerequisites and or or those prerequisites have been um, 
swapped out for other things like other sources of energy, uh, for example, and life still uh, finds a way. Um, <laughs> so it's it's all it's all fascinating. It's all really good. And and Blue Planet, uh, I like a lot specifically because uh, like Planet Earth, it's uh, Richard Attenborough uh, narrating it, and his voice is very soothing. And this and it has a lot of waves and like ocean sounds and like whale calls. So sometimes when I don't feel good, I will like put it on and take a nap to Blue Planet. Yeah, yeah that's a great. Uh... <laughs> they also and just it's... have ocean sounds and whale songs if you want that. Yeah, but are they narrated by Richard Attenborough? Oh no, they're not. Although I'm sure we could get a very uh, good uh, uh, facsimile in the in the form of of Matthew. Why? Why go through that? Why go through the trouble? Oh, the of, thing. Uh, oh, trouble. Sure. Yeah. Hey, I was going to say, why go through the trouble of recording Matthew? But I guess we do that about four <laughs> times a week anyway. So hey! I don't know. You know what? Maybe there is something to this. Let's talk after the show. But anyway, my number two, Blue Planet. All right. That's not what I'm hanging about. My number two. I know what you're thinking. Ah, there's one Ken Burns movie that's been listed. Could there possibly be two? Ken Burns movies no. that are listed in this week's show? And the answer is, of course, yes. And I know, Ken Burns has done some amazing documentaries. Jazz, Baseball, The Civil War, Mark Twain, uh, Frank Lloyd Wright, FDR, Empire of the Air. But if you want to see a magnificent, a magnificent Ken Burns film, you need to watch Horatio's Drive, America's First Road Trip. That is a good one. Now, what is amazing about this is that there, it, this is like a two hour documentary, hour and a half long documentary. And there is so very little, there are so few images of Horatio Nelson, Horatio Nelson Jackson and his car and his dog and his companion that a lot of this has to be recreations. And a lot of times they're just showing the same picture over and over and over again. But what's amazing about this documentary is not that the footage that Ken Burns ends up ultimately using. It is the fact that the bulk of this story is told through letters that Horatio would write every single day to his wife. Uh, I forget what her name is, uh, but everybody kind of conflates Horatio's drive and the Civil War movies uh, with the um, the make-believe woman lower no 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 with martha they're they're always like dearest oh, martha right and so uh his his wife is is uh uh bertha richardson wells that's what that's what her name is and i sat down i was like oh there's a new ken burns documentary coming out i'm gonna sit down and watch this and then i'm like getting into it i'm like okay this is a little different for a ken burns film because they're using so much like modern footage footage of the car footage of the locations where he was driving through and then there was this just beautiful voices that were both narrating the piece as well as reading the letters that Jackson was writing to his wife. And I sat there for a long time going, I know these voices. I know these voices. I, how do I know these voices? And then suddenly it clicked. Tom Hanks narrates Horatio Nelson Jackson's letters to his wife, mm -hmm. which is just fantastic. And then Keith David is the narrator of the entire movie. And it is fascinating because this was a, not just a challenge, can we do it? It was actually a competition. He plunked down the money and said, I bet that I can, it's kind of like uh, around the world in 80 days, where I bet I can drive from the West Coast to the East Coast 
and be the first person to do it. And this is a time when there aren't roads anywhere. He was driving in the middle of nowhere. And then other people started to get on the challenge to see who could make it to, I think it was New York first. And he did it. And it's really, really, it's a cool movie, even though it's so dry. But when you hear Tom Hanks reading, you know, uh, dear swipes, let me tell you about this time we got stuck in the, it's just so good. And it's worth checking out. In fact, it may have spawned a Twitter, uh, what is it, a Twitter handle, My Dearest Martha, that kind of pokes fun at Horatio and the letters that he wrote to his wife. But you might want to go check out My Dearest Martha on Twitter. You might just be surprised. But Horatio's Drive, my number two, Horatio's Drive, America's first road trip, definitely worth checking out. Yeah, when that came out, I was Oh, you were working at PBS at that time, weren't you? I was working for PBS, yeah. yeah. And I was really, really expecting, I'm like, well, okay, so this is now out. People know this, people have seen this. It has to, we have to be like a year away from an announcement that Disney is basically using this story as a as a story like they're going to make a movie about this and nobody has and it's amazing because not only is this like a real life you know around the world in 80 days type story it's like these two dudes and a an adult an adult like there was there's yeah. like a, a literal animal sidekick in reality in this drive and the dog is well documented because horatia would write about him mm-hmm. and there are pictures of the three of them and the dog is like wearing goggles yep Yep. And it's and I'm like, oh my God, what what else has to happen for this to become an actual movie? Yeah. And it's like it still hasn't happened. Nope, it has not. Which is unfortunate, although I don't know who I think PBS still owns the rights to that film, or maybe he does. I don't remember. So much is going on with Netflix and Ken Burns sure. and PBS that I don't know the current state of some of those films. But I know you can still check this movie out, so definitely go check it out. All right, we have made it to the top of our list. We are at our number ones. Oh, this is going to be very interesting. I'm, I'm sure people are going, oh, did Stephen put a third Ken Burns movie on his list? Oh, you're going to have to wait and find out. But first, here's Matthew with his number one. Oh, gee, thanks. Hey, guys, here's something really exciting. But first, how? Uh, all right. So my number one is actually, uh, there was some argument in my head. There were a lot of things that wanted to be number one. Uh, of course, the first thing that wanted to be number one was this is Spinal Tap, which I'm told is actually not a real documentary. Uh, it was almost uh, Bring on the Night, the documentary of Sting's 86 tour. But then I realized, no, there's one more important film, and one that I haven't seen in decades. Uh, in fact, that most people haven't seen in decades because I don't think it's been available since the 1980s. It is the story of the end of the Beatles. 1970s Let It Be is my number one. And it's interesting to me because a lot of times when you have a documentary, there's, you know, explanation, there's narration, there's somebody trying to shape the narrative into something and telling you, and then these things happened. Or, my dearest Martha, the president is Woodrow Wilson! Whatever it is that happens, you don't have that in Let It Be. Let It Be has no narration it has no sit-down interviews there's no confessionals there's no moments where you know they take john aside and say tell me john what did you mean by that and john's like well what i really meant was that i needed something to drink you don't have any of that you just have the beatles trying to record an album slowly coming apart 
yelling at each other, being angry with each other, and then on the spur of the moment, deciding to literally create one of the most iconic moments in rock history by going up on top of the Apple building and just throwing a concert until the police show up to tell them they can't anymore because they're disrupting traffic. It's really, really bizarre, and it's one of those films that I, I wish was available on DVD. I wish that I could just go and stream this somewhere, or I could show it to the kid, because I remember seeing it and being like, whoa, what's going on? And of course, it's the movie that introduced me to a lot of Beatles stuff, uh, a lot of their good songs, and also Octopus's Garden, uh, all things that I learned about through Let It Be. But I think what's most fascinating is to watch the movie and see that Yoko never gets more than about two feet from John's side throughout the entirety of this film. And then you have to ask yourself, the Beatles were a part of this production. They knew this movie was being made. They saw, they had to see this movie before it was released why didn't somebody in the Beatles say, wow, this makes it look like we're falling apart and bad things are happening and we're all terrible people? And I, I wonder if it's just that they were too focused on the fact that the band was literally disintegrating and this was the last album and that rooftop performance was their last public performance ever. I don't know. The answers don't exist. And, you know, the two of them that are left are in their 90s now or something. I don't know. But it's a fascinating movie. I recommend seeing it if you ever can. Uh, good luck trying to find it, but let it be from 1970 is mine, number one. Very cool. Very, very cool. All right, Rodrigo, what do you have for your number one? Uh, my number one is a series that uh, aired on PBS, and it's um, one of my favorites because it takes up a, a pretty deep dive into what sort of evolution and mutation is. Um, while simultaneously uh, very um, uh, explaining things in very simple terms, using uh, graphics and, and CGI to, to explain things, and uh, the sort of the main uh, a person in this uh, thing, Neil Shubin, is uh, very personable, and that's uh, your inner fish. Um, if you guys haven't seen your fish, I recommend it because it is uh, a three-part series the first one is your inner fish the second is your inner reptile and the third one is your inner primate and so um it is kind of an explanation of where humans get certain traits um so for example uh, one of the things that has always stuck with me is that they say well fish don't get hernias um because fish, they're like male fish, their gonads are like up by their hearts, but that's a terrible place for human gonads to be. So testicles have to descend. Um, but when you're in the womb, your uh, essentially evolution plays out as the fetus is born because it's the same, you know, just gunk. And there's all these markers that say, turn this on, turn this off, turn this on, turn this off. So for males, um, our gonads have to descend from where they were back when we were fish all the way down. And that's actually what, why uh, people get hernias, why, why uh, 
people with testicles get hernias is because there's there has to be a rupture during the growing process that makes that happen. It's like animals that don't who's don't have their gonads descend don't have this issue and we only have this issue because our gonads had to move because being next to our heart is a terrible place for something that stands <laughs> up straight right it's like for a fish it's fine um and it's just this is just filled with that where does our skin come from where do our teeth come from where does our hair come from why can we grip things and most importantly um where sort of tetrapods in general come from uh which is the story of a fish called Tiktaalik, who is actually like a, a little fish that was actually walking around on land. Um, and it is so cute. Like, it's such a weird-looking animal. And it's worth it because this documentary is worthwhile because there are lots of times when you see Tiktaalik moving around. And um, as the documentary goes on, Tiktaalik just, like, shows up different times. And it's just like walking around and it's super cute and hilarious. So, um, and this happens every time by the end of the last one, he's like writing the, this is also a very Chicago cent because he works in the, at the university of Chicago. So it's also weird, a very Chicago centric thing. So if you like Chicago, there you go. But there's like this scene where they like, he's writing the L and he's like surrounded by all these like skeletal animals that he's been talking about. And they're like very polite about waiting for the door to open and like getting off the L it's weird, but it's cool. It's it's really cute, uh, and it's it's definitely one of my favorites. It's, it's the sort of thing that I will I will play every once in a while, uh, just sort of unprompted because it's just such a good piece of science television, um, but also because it's very well and sort of charismatically put together. Yeah. Very cool. Very, very cool. So there are a bunch of movies. So Rodrigo, the movie that I that I think you should get your wife to look at is called genius on hold it's about the guy who invented the you know the the way the switch phones and the, the hold button and all that kind of stuff and how he got uh, taken by the mafia and ripped out of a bunch of m money there's also jiro dreams of sushi which is really good right uh, people haven't seen that uh if you are a fan of music a band called death is fascinating it's a fascinating film uh, but I don't have, I don't have Bowling for Columbine. I don't have Fahrenheit uh, 9-11. I don't have, uh, I don't have uh, uh, Super Size Me on this mm -hmm. list. Yeah, because, Food Inc. Yeah, Food Inc. is not on there. You know, I don't, I don't even have, uh, there's another good one that's called The Institute. It's really crazy. But my number one film, my number one documentary is one that incorporates uh, traditional documentary style with some dramatized reenactments all wrapped up in an essay about fraud. Uh -huh. um, and it's one of these films that happened after Orson Welles got basically chased out of America because people were like, we don't understand your stuff anymore. Go away. And he's like, well, I'm a genius. I will go to Europe and I will make films there. And F for fake is a fascinating look into conspiracy theories, into fraudsters, people that get taken. Have you seen this one, Rodrigo? This is another one that you guys might uh, be interested in. No, I haven't seen it, but I've I've heard a lot of conversation about it. Yeah. So what's the guy's name? What's the artist's name, uh, Matthew? Uh, Elmer DeHore or whatever his El name is? Elmer Dure. Elmer Dure is, is the guy's name. Is this, like this, I don't know how to pronounce it. I don't. It's I this, don't uh, he's there. a guy that fakes paintings and he got under under a lot of controversy back in the early 70s 
because his biographer, Clifford Irving, is also the guy that claimed that he was the one that picked up um, a shoebox uh, wearing guy, uh, Howard, Hughes. Howard Hughes, and wrote the Howard Hughes biography about that. And so turns it's out like six degrees of, of uh, fraud. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's what Orson Welles is getting at in this whole thing. And if you pay really close attention to F for fake, you'll see the ending coming before the ending comes. And when it does, if you're not paying attention, you're going to be like, oh, my God, I really didn't. I really wasn't paying attention. And now I have a different view on how stories are being told, how we can incorporate uh, reenactments, how we can incorporate real stories, how we can incorporate essays. Essentially, what Orson Welles was doing back in 1972 or whenever this movie came out is uh, 73. Sorry. Um he was doing what YouTubers are doing today, like movies with Mikey and uh, all these other uh, YouTube people that have these long essay documentaries about a certain <laughs> subject. Orson Welles was doing that back in the 1970s. That's how far in advance Orson Welles was from everyone else around him. F for fake is uh, it takes a little getting used to because it is 1970s. Oja Kadar walks around basically naked the entire time. Well, not basically naked. Uh, but there's a lot of revealing stuff that's going on with Oja Kadar. Uh, there's some sexist stuff that goes on in the in the film, uh, but it's kind of a product of the time and the country uh, in France and Italy or France and Greece and parts of Italy. Uh, but this is definitely a movie everyone should check out. If you've never seen F for Fake, stop what you're doing right now because the show's over and go and watch F for Fake by Orson Welles. It is so, 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 so good. You get a little bit of insight into Orson Welles. You get a little bit of insight to what was going on in his mind, as well as just this overall look at fraudsters. And the only yeah. the only problem is uh, with uh, DeHore or whatever his name is, is and uh, Clifford Irving is you kind of have to know what was going on in 1970 when all this stuff was blowing up to really appreciate what this film was doing. But even then, I just showed it to my advanced video class uh, about two or three months ago. And we sat and watched it in one one sitting and they're like, well, I was kind of lost, but the film does kind of explain what's going on with these guys. So it was easy enough to pick up and follow, but they all loved it as well. So F for fake, my number one documentary, I probably end up watching this about once a year and just get tickled every time I watch it. So there you go, ladies and gentlemen, top five documentaries for you guys to watch. You got plenty of time on your hands. You might as well just sit through each of these. Watch one a day. Make yourself well-rounded and, and a better person, or in case of, of some series, if you can get a hold of them, uh, something that'll keep you occupied for a week or two. So, uh, so many good documentaries on this list. Maybe you have some ideas for documentaries that should be added to this list. Here's what you can do. You can drop us an email at podcast at Majorspoilers.com. You can go over to the Major Spoilers website, and in the show notes for this episode, you can uh, share your, uh, or in the uh, comments section for this episode, you can share your list of top five documentaries or better yet go over to our discord server where this topic originated and in the channel for top five you can share your list right there as well or even better if you become a patron at patreon.com slash major spoiler spoilers at the five dollar level or higher you get access to secret channels on the major spoilers discord some really good ones over there and people want to see your list there they'll want to see it over at the major spoilers website they'll want to see it in an email to us why because everyone loves a list, and we will talk with you soon. This podcast is copyright 2020 by Major Spoilers Entertainment, LLC.